Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I've got Elias here again today. We've got a pretty cool show, Elias. Um, I don't know if you happen to listen to it, but um, I actually listened to the Facebook earnings call last week. You did. I did not. In full disclosure, I didn't listen to it because it's something I normally do. But I was listening to the compound the other day, and they were pimping a... uh, an app called Quarter. I'm like, what's that? And it's basically an app that goes and breaks down the, the quarterly earnings calls for all these companies. So you can just go search uh, through the earnings call and it'll let you skip right to like the Q&A or get a, a digital copy of it. So it's a really cool way to get some information without having to sit on the hour long earnings call and listen to all the you know minutia in the first 40 minutes because what re- people really care about is just the Q&A. But one of the things that struck me about the call is Mark Zuckerberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, mentioned probably like 20 times that they have plans to begin developing an immersive 3D internet-like experience or a metaverse. And honestly, I didn't really know what this was. Like my first thought was this is Oculus goggles, which I believe they sell already, or you know, just virtual reality. So I went out and just looked up the definition and the definition of the metaverse is uh, a collective virtual shared space, including the sum of all virtual worlds and Internet. So basically creating this real world or new universe on the Internet and people are calling it Internet 3.0. Is it the Matrix? I I think similar. So, you know, it's funny because I knew we were going to do the show on this. So last night. I went to Amazon. I bought the Matrix. I'm like, why am I buying the Matrix? But I wanted to see what pill Neo took, and I fell asleep before that actually happened. But uh, yeah, so now, I think now it's that like, we're talking about the metaverse, I'm going to watch the the Matrix trilogy. Yeah, this so I, weekend, and I'll get myself um, all stirred up on some sort of metaverse conspiracy that this is the way my life's going now. And I think what's interesting about this is it's just another piece of change that's happening in the world. I mean, last year we talked a lot about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and those are kind of actually involved in this metaverse. We talked about NFTs, you know, NFTs, they were brand new, but it's all these new things happening. And it's where sometimes for investors, for the the speculative part of your portfolio, that there may be some opportunities at some point. Um, the, the, the one thing that comes to mind, and we did this show like a year ago, remember Earth 2? Yeah, I was just going to ask you about Earth 2. Yeah, I think this is what this is. And, you know, I don't understand how it all works, but I think it's important that we start to become aware of what this is, especially if companies like Facebook, this is their goal. You know, if you um, you think about how the Internet started, it was really just, hey, we go to a Web page, we get some information, maybe watch a video. I don't even know if it was that. It was just get some information, right? Then think, it became. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And now the Internet is used as for most people. They use it still to gather and you know, get information. But now they're using using it more as a social network. You, you think about what's out there. I mean, if you went to somebody's phone and pulled it out and said, what's your phone usage? The vast majority of that phone usage is probably a mix of TikTok. Twitter, YouTube, um, Facebook, all, you know, social network things versus just the original pure Internet. And 
when Facebook talks about something like this, it makes me wonder, hey, what is the next thing? Because at some point it's going to evolve beyond just saying hi to your friends over a chat space, right? Oh, you post on their wall, happy birthday. Well, does it get to the point where we actually just like virtually go to their house and knock on the door and say happy birthday, but never leave the comfort of our home? I know you mentioned something like that earlier. Well, I was just wondering, because so the Earth 2, the show we did about that, where you can buy virtual property. So now that there's a lot more talk of the metaverse and Mark Zuckerberg really wants to bring this, you know, bring this to life. So if someone, if someone buys my property in the virtual world, like, do I have any rights to that? Or can someone, can someone buy my plot of land on earth too, in my house, and then they could have like a virtual gathering at my house that I'm not even part of. I think, and they do can. I have any rights to the virtual property that I own physically? I don't think so. So it's funny you say that I was actually pulling up Earth 2 as we talked. Yeah. So if I wanted to buy my property, which is not large, in virtual, in the virtual arena on Earth 2, it would cost me 363 euros. Well, you better buy it before someone else does. I don't know. I don't think it's worth that <laughs> in the <laughs> virtual world. I mean, so I, I think it's a really... Good thing, though, for investors to pay attention to this. It's not like this is some obscure third party saying this. This is the CEO of um, the CEO of Facebook who came out and said, hey, this is our goal. And, you know, a couple of things that. Well, let's call it Web 3.0. That's what they talked about. Um, you saw some of this in um, the movie Ready Player One or Tron. This stuff is probably still years away. We've we've had like virtual virtual reality headsets and we've already been going towards that a little bit. But the question becomes is how does it integrate like real companies in today's society? Will the Amazons and the DoorDash of the world actually be part of this or Netflix? Like who who's going to develop property in the new metaverse if if Facebook can pull this off yeah that's a good question and i i really don't know um do you think we if this do you think there'll be an application where we could people could have their headset on and be like watching our show while we're while we're recording it that'd be really cool wouldn't that be kind of it almost be like how now a lot of people we don't go live but there's live youtube shows well you could um maybe you could add to the experience through youtube where I have my headset on and I, it's like I'm in the studio with them, but no one's actually there. Well, just imagine the efficiencies of in our business. Hey, we're going to do a client meeting it, instead of doing Zoom. It's like they're sitting right there with us. Like so there could be some level right, it of take Zoom to the next level. too. Yeah, and so who knows? Maybe that's part of it. But I thought that was really interesting. It's something people should be aware of. Web 3.0. Um, kind of cool. Uh, yeah. So if you're, I guess what, so if you're an investor and you want, and you want to take part in technology, like what, what are some of the options for you could, um, there's technology mutual funds out there. There's ETFs that track the NASDAQ. Well, I think the issue becomes is most of the avail availability to invest in this type of technology. It's typically privately held. It's not 
you know, they don't list their company right away. So think of like um, Robinhood. Robinhood just did their IPO, I don't know, a week ago. It's valued at $39 billion, I think, today. Snoop Dogg and there's another rapper who invested in Robinhood. Um, Snoop Dogg and Nas, they both invest in Robinhood. Um, and at the time, the company was worth $62 million. They got in early because they had the opportunity to buy into a privately held organization and invest. So that's not readily available for the everyday investor. And... Um, I think one of the things we've seen is that the companies aren't coming public quite as often as they were before. So it, it's held privately longer. And a lot of the, a lot of the profits already made for the people who got in early. Um, I mean, I think Robin hood was started in 2014. So you think it's 2021 took them seven years to go public. So I'm not sure what the investment opportunities will be for somebody. I'm sure they will come along at some point, but it's just something to keep an eye on. But typically the people that get access to this are private equity, early stage private equity companies that are going to have the opportunity to um, take advantage of this. So kind of with this, another really interesting article that came out. And I think back to uh, when El Salvador decided to start taking Bitcoin and recognize it as legal tender. And they called the World Bank and asked for help and they basically denied. But uh, the American Bankers Association now encourages partnerships with crypto firms. And this was a report put out in Forbes. They put this, this report out that they're now encouraging partnerships with, uh, with crypto firms, partly because they've started to see the profitability that the sector can add. But I also think that clients are interested in it. Yeah, they are. And so this is, I mean, I guess to me, one of the obstacles for crypto right now is probably the ease of use for the consumer. If So just the things I know and understand about it, if someone wants to own Bitcoin and they like they really are a believer in cryptocurrencies and they're able to store it themselves, it's a lot more difficult than a traditional bank account that you would have a, a debit a debit card for or a checkbook for that you can spend money out of. So, I mean, this is probably for the crypto space and stuff like that. This is probably an encouraging sign, right? Because this is just another step towards making it easier for consumers to use. And that's probably, I mean, at this point to me, that's the biggest obstacle they're facing is how do they make this where people can transact in it in a way that's convenient, in a way that they understand. And and then and probably another thing would be the more adoption there is, maybe the price won't be so volatile. I mean, that's spec that's speculation. But um um yeah, I guess to me this is an encouraging sign for the crypto space. What struck me when I read through the article, it said eighty percent of people that own crypto would be willing to hold it at a bank. They trust the bank more. And I think what the banks can become for the partnerships with crypto is some of that payment processing, right? They they, they have the way to accept payments. So um, there's a lot of work to be done in crypto, but I just think it's interesting turn of events. Like forever, banks aren't going to be involved. And now banks want to be involved. And they're seeing that there's profitability here. Customers are curious and interested in it. Um, and there's rapid adoption. People are buying crypto. And for me, the first time I really, I was aware of it, but the first time I'm like, oh, it's easy to buy. It was like a year ago. I opened up my PayPal account and it's like, buy crypto. I'm like, 
wait, I can buy crypto in my PayPal account now. And and I don't know if that has some of the adoption, but instead of having to seek out and go find a wallet and do a, some extra hoops, you were able to just go to your PayPal account and buy it. So I, I think that the more easily available it is, the more it's going to become adopted into our our everyday. Yeah. And do you think this adds... Do you think this adds to... So, okay, if banks... 80% of people that own crypto are willing to have the bank custody it for them or help them transact in it. So I guess to me, that's two things. One that shows it's going to be easier, but then does that kind of go against what the real, I guess what I consider the hardcore crypto believers, doesn't that kind of go against the reasons they like it? Like, don't they like that it's not regulated and that they're owning it? And then a big talking point I always hear is, we're cutting out the middleman, which to me, the middleman's the bank, right? The bank's going to figure out a way to become the middleman all the time. And that's kind of, that's gonna been get, one of my they're gonna points. Get a, they're going to get us, they're going to get a skim. And it, whether that's good or bad, it is what it is. I mean, they're a profit center, just like any business, they have to make money, but they want to be involved because they're seeing the profitability that's available. They're seeing that the clients are interested. Think about what a bank does for people. They try to get you to own as many services and products that they can because the more you have at that bank the harder it becomes to leave i switched banks my private banker left the bank went to a new bank it has taken me like two years to get completely away from the other bank because i have a little check coming in here and i have one little ach for two bucks going out here and it just has taken a long time it's a big process to switch a bank you know, unless you have no no automatic ACH, nothing going yeah. on. Like if your bills are still coming to your mailbox, and that's and then you're writing a check and mailing it. Yeah, it's probably easy to switch banks when you have all this automatic stuff set up. Well, it's yeah. you, you almost have to start a spreadsheet. Like if you want to change banks, the first thing you got to do is you have to list everything that needs to be changed. Not for a month, for a whole year. Because right. we forget about the things that come out one time a year. Yeah. Oh, my annual membership for this is 350 bucks, and it comes out. I mean, it's a huge hassle. So what banks want to do is they want to get as many touches with you as possible, which is all industries. Insurance business does the same thing. I think like a state farm. They want to sell you car insurance. They want to sell you life insurance. They want to sell you long-term care. They want to sell you disability because the more products they have, the less likely you are to switch away from them. Yeah, so here here's a here's a shocker here for this next article. I was really shocked by this. Forty percent of Americans fear retirement more than death. I'm not in that forty percent. I fear death a lot more than retirement. But um, I, apparently, it's a it's a scary thing. So immediately when I read this, I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course, if you've never spent any time thinking about it or starting an investment account or at least addressing it, of course, it's going to be scary when that time comes in your life if you've never done any planning, but simple solution. So here, here, let's break down what's causing the fear because they have the list of what the number one fear, the number one fear of Americans is having a lack of income. 87% of people say that scares them. Um, other fears include losing employment-based health insurance, 77%. Not keeping mental mentally active, seventy one percent. Not keeping physically active, sixty four. And then not having social friendship networks associated with work, fifty percent. 
the lack of income, th- this is in my part threefold. One, I believe people are nervous and are losing faith in the overall social security system. It's overfunded. They've been hearing this for years. I believe they are worried whether they're going to get social security. I know when I have a 45 year old come in, they're like, well, social security won't be there for me. So they're planning on it not being there. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's if I was under 45, I would, would just plan on no social security. Do I believe it'll be there? Absolutely. In some form. I just don't know what. Okay. The second group of people that I believe are fear, fearful here. And the, the reason is think about your grandparents. They went to work for 30 years when they retired. They got a gold watch and a pension. They didn't have to worry about where their paycheck was coming from. Today, how many people under age 40 have a pension? It's very, very few because we've shifted, the employer shifted the responsibility of saving and retirement from a pension to the individual driven primarily through the 401k. It doesn't mean they're not contributing money. They're just putting the responsibility for generating income on an individual versus saying, hey, pension company, you do it. So that's two. And the third is people are not planning because I'm confident if I get a 35 or a 40 or a 45 year old or a 50 year old, whatever age they are, and they come in here and we do a financial plan, we're not going to be fearful about this. We might be fearful because we haven't done a good job. If you come in here at 60 or 65, you have nothing saved. You should probably be fearful. You've done a bad job. Sorry, it's just the facts, and there's Mm -hmm. probably not time to make it up. But if you're 35 or 40, you should be fearful of this because there's ways to plan around it. Yeah, and do you think just psychologically, do you think that is accumulating easier than getting to retirement and having a distribution plan? Do you think just wrapping your mind around that for an investor, do you think that's more difficult? Psychologically, so psychologically, I do think it's difficult for people that have spent 30. Let's let's go back. Good accumulators, people who are saving money for those people. It becomes difficult for them to come to grips with the idea that I'm going to start spending what I've saved because I've been in savings mode for so long and I've been fearful to ever touch this. Think about it. Thirty five years. And you're told, don't touch this for 35 years. And then one day you crack open the egg and you're like, oh man, I got to start using this. And it's especially fearful for people who don't know what the probabilistic outcome is. Because what's people's number one fear? Running out of income is the same thing as running out of money. Running out of money is part of their fear. And do you you think that a lot, I guess I feel like when we meet with prospects, even people that like we're going through the process and I'm thinking, wow, you really know investing and you've done a really good job accumulating. So then sometimes I'm kind of questioning, I don't know why you're more nervous about the distribution strategy, but do you think mentally people think, okay, this is going to be like a wholesale change in what I'm doing where it's really, it's more, I guess to me, there's more like fine tuning because you're still going to be invested so your money can grow, but you're taking money out. Do you think people almost kind of psych themselves up because they think the change is really bigger than what it is? They do. And part of what we try to do 
is put together a well thought out distribution strategy because people's primary fear is running out of money or running out of income. You know, when you're accumulating and in the accumulation phase of your life and the market goes down 20 or 30 percent, in some cases, that's actually advantageous to you for the short term, because if you have a regular systematic savings plan established, you're just dollar cost averaging in. you're buying shares at a lower cost. That's a win. But for the person in the distribution phase, if the market goes down 30 percent, that actually can be detrimental to them. Because the sequence of returns in the distribution phase really matter as much as the overall return. And what I mean by that is if you haven't put together a distribution strategy and you don't have some money on the sideline in case there's a market drop and all of your money's in the stock market and it goes down 30% and you need income, guess what you have to do? You have to lock in a loss at that point. You're going to sell the market at the low and lock in a loss. You never have the opportunity to get it back. And that's what we talk about having a distribution strategy. So I think that's fearful for people because they think, oh, this is this wholesale change. And it is a wholesale change to some extent with some portion of your portfolio to make sure you can drive the income that you need to get and make sure you get through retirement. It's all easily quantified, though, through a financial plan. Yeah, so I mean, it's easy. Right. So it's easy to say the the fears are warranted right? When you get to that point. Um, but, and I've heard you tell this to new clients and prospects is really what we're, we're helping you sleep at night because this plan's supposed to give you confidence so you can get a good night's sleep and not worry about the things that you're worrying about right now. If somebody listening to this is fearful of retirement, they should go to our website, btwellshow.com and click get started and we'll get in touch with you and we'll help walk you through this process. I'll tell you what I'm more fearful of than people running out of money because I think I can help people figure that out. Yeah, okay. And my parents are two years away from retirement. My mom put it in her two years. She's a HR executive in town and they asked for a two year notice. If she, they actually retire, we'll see, but their intention is to retire. I'm more concerned about the mental activity and what they're going to do. Because people that don't have something in retirement, they don't have a hobby, they don't have some driving passion to do something, I just feel like you can see the mental activity part slip, so mentally you're going down, or you're just bored. I mean, I don't, I'm fearful for my parents because they like to camp and they have kind of hobbies, but not really. And I don't want them to be delivering, you know, pizzas because they're bored. Yeah. So, okay. So like, how do you, how do you help them with that? Just encourage them to do things. I told my mom before you retire, you need to figure out what you're going to do with your time. So are you going to volunteer? Are you going to get a part-time job? What are you going to do with your time? Don't just slide into this sideways. This is no different. You know, we talk about just the financial planning process, the money part. You can play in the other part too, right? What am I going to do? Can I find a charity I'm passionate about? Can I find a cause I want to help? Maybe you love animals, so you're going to go volunteer your time three days a week at the Humane Society. I don't know what it is, but what I'm saying is have a plan for that as well. Because if your plan is I'm going to retire and then I'm going to golf and you live in Iowa, I promise you that plan's not working out. That, that's my plan. Well, yeah, you're going to golf for six months. You're going to be like, man, what am I going to do? And the next thing you know, you're going to be driving the Jimmy John's truck. 
I would, you're be bored. I would probably enjoy that actually. I, but my point I'm just is, teasing. yeah, but let's I, I got gotcha. you. Let's put more than you know an hour of thought into what will we do and how will we spend our time and make sure our life still has some type of meaning in retirement. So yes. that's what I'm more fearful for people about than actually running out of money. Yeah, and I think we do a good job with when clients ask us, hey. Is it okay if I spend money to do this? A lot of times we say, yeah, it's your money. Spend it. Enjoy it. Well, That's why you saved it. But remember what we also do? We quantify for them that it'll work. Well, right. We're not winging the decision. Either. I can put it right. For example, I had this the other day. Called in. Hey, we think we want to spend about 10000 a year on a vacation. I want to take my wife, my family, it sounds like a lot. It's probably not that much for a vacation, especially if you're going to take your family or you're going to go overseas. I said, well, just let me see. So I was able to just go to the financial plan, plug it in, lower their probability of success by like 1%. It wasn't statistically relevant. I'm like, yeah, go spend 10 grand a year for the next, you know, 10 years. I didn't do it forever because I know when they're 88, they're not going to take a $10,000 vacation. Correct. But hey, for a number of years, this will work. Go enjoy your money now. Because at some point, somebody else is going to enjoy it if you don't. So you ready to to uh, talk about some listener questions that yeah. we had? So, yeah, I, I really like the first one. I'll let you tee it up. but And I'll be honest, I wasn't that familiar with this strategy, so I went and researched it a little bit. Yeah, so Lisa, she asked, my dad always said I should abide by the 20 slash four slash 10 rule when buying a car. I just got a new job that is a bit farther of a drive and would like to have a more reliable car, but don't want to completely wipe out my savings by putting 20% down. It is, is it a bad idea to put less money down? Okay. So the 24, 10 rule refers to making a 20% down payment on a car with a four-year loan and then spending no more than 10% of your monthly income on transportation expenses. Okay, so here's what I think about this. And we've had this debate in my office numerous times about paying cash for a car or getting a car with a warranty. And now when I say a new car, I'm not talking about like a new Lexus. I'm talking about like an inexpensive but new or newer car with some type of a warranty. And where interest rates are today, they're basically giving the money away to you. And if you think about paying cash for a car, if she can't afford 20% down payment, so let's say this is a you know, a $25,000 car. If she her whole, whole savings is drained, that's 5,000. What kind of a car do you get for 5 grand? A beater? You get a fixer upper. Yeah. Well, when the first problem arises and she needs something for 1,000 bucks, where she's going to get where's she going to get that money from? She's not. Well, yeah, if you can't, she's gonna have to put it on right. a credit card. If you can't afford the, yeah, if you can't afford the down payment on a decent car, you're not gonna afford the maintenance on it. So I'm one. not as concerned about the down payment you put on the car, right? Here's what I like about this rule. I like the four the four years. Most people don't take four year car loans. You go to the car dealership; they're trying to sell you a six year, now a seven year. It's how they're getting people to afford these eighty five thousand, a hundred thousand dollar cars. Well, Give you the loan for seven years. The problem with that is people, most people don't keep their car that long. One, they get upside down. So four years, that's a reasonable amount of time to pay that car off. 
And then the 10% means, you know, no more than 10% of your income. I think that makes total sense. So I, I guess, Lisa, I wouldn't be so concerned about the down payment. I'd be more concerned to make sure we're buying a car that's within our capacity to pay for. Because the other option is you keep the car you drive and then you save this monthly payment for four years to buy the new car, right? And pay cash. The problem is how much money did you put into your car? All along the way. Right. And so, for someone who just got a new job and it sounds like she has a commute, well, if you have an unreliable vehicle and you're new at your job, you could end up in a situation where you're calling your boss first thing in the morning. Hey, I can't make it today. My car is on the side of the highway. What, what if you're no a, one wants to make that call? What if you're in a sales job, you go buy a $5,000 car no. and let it break down and you're driving across the state. You can't do that. So I would be less concerned about the 20%. I don't want you to take all of the money out of your savings for a down payment on a car. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, because realistically, how much are you really saving? Not I much. mean, on if, if you factor this into the payment you're going to make, you're not saving that much money. So I, I would keep your savings Do But I like the four years. Don't take longer than a four-year loan if you have to take a loan for a car. And make sure it's a car you can afford. Don't go buy a crazy expensive car. That means, you know, if you make 40,000 a year, well, that means your car payments less than 350 bucks. Yeah. So that should be affordable. That should be affordable car. Yep. So, okay. We got another one, a guy named Dane. Um, this one's about how advisors are compensated. So this is a good question. We get this a lot in meetings. How are we actually paid? Uh, so my coworker keeps talking about only working with fee only financial advisors. I looked into a few advisors who said they are fee-based. What is the difference between the two, and does it really make a difference? Good question. Um, fee-based, fee-only. So full, dis full disclosure, we're fee-based advisors in our we office. We are. And that, what, that, what that means is we have the ability to utilize a you know, fee-for-service model or a commission model. And there are certain clients that a commission model makes most sense for. The fear and the, the what fee-only fee advisors will tell you, well, they don't have to work in your best interest. Well, on a commission account, technically I don't, but we do. If we're working on a managed account basis, which is a level fee model, which is where most of our clients are at, right? We do have a legal obligation to work in your best interest and work as a fiduciary. The fee-only advisor literally only does either a fee for service, an hourly rate, or a percentage of assets under management. Percentage of assets under management is the same way that we work with our fee-based clients, okay? It's the most common way to do it. But I'll give you an example of a client who doesn't need a managed account. And then the fee-only advisor could not help them. I had a gentleman call me up. He'd owned a mutual fund company for a really long time, one mutual fund, you know, a bunch of funds, but one company. And he said, hey, my buddies, and he had moved that account to his buddy, who's a broker that said, well, it's an IRA, so we have to have it in a managed account. And literally nothing was happening in this managed account other than processing RMD. And the client didn't want a bunch of transactions. He just wanted a buy and hold strategy. And he go, and it's, it was like 1.5 million. He goes, I'm paying like 20,000 a year in fees, and I don't even want this that client was able to go back to the mutual fund company on a commission basis, buy the funds that he wanted, never make a transaction, and not pay an asset management fee. 
And was it the right thing for the client? He didn't pay any sales charge. Didn't cost him anything to do it. Saved 20 grand a year. So when a fee-only advisor says that's the only way to do it, it's not the only way to do it. There are cases where larger accounts make sense for a person who doesn't want active management to just sit there and either grow or kick out dividends. So that's the difference. Fee-only, they only do fees. Fee-based advisors have the ability to do fees and commissions. And typically a good one will disclose where you're going. Yeah. And so for us, what, you know, it's like those, uh, cause we do a lot of fee based or fee based advisors. That's most of our assets. 95% of my business. Yeah. Or in that model. Um, and it's kind of like those Fisher investment commercials, right? When, uh, when clients do better, we do better. That's probably the easiest way to explain it to people. Yep. Yep. No, that's a good question. We get asked that a lot. It's pretty easy to um, explain. I don't think one's better than the other. It's really the integrity of the person you're working with and what the net result is. Right. And it's also client driven too, like the guy you were just talking about. He doesn't, he has no need for active management and doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. He's like, right. I don't want to do this. I don't want to pay these fees. Nothing's happening. There's no transactions. Why am I paying these fees? I believe this is exactly what I owned before. Um, so with that said, great show, Elias. Uh, if anybody's looking for help answering any of these questions, you can get us at btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, Consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.